the rising tide lift all banks? Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Motley Fool analyst Matt Frankel. Matt, how are you doing today? Good. It's been a while and I'm glad to be here. We are going to talk some banking because uh, it's banking season. Banking earnings are usually the first part of earnings season. Uh, a little a little, uh, little appetizer before we get into the tech earnings uh, that start later this week. Last week on the show, we had Dylan and Jason Moser. They covered some of the banks that reported on Friday. They covered Wells Fargo, JP Morgan Chase. One they didn't talk about too much that I'm kind of fascinated by is Citigroup, also reported on Friday. This one has had a bit of a rougher trajectory than even Wells Fargo, which has had its own challenges. They had better than expected revenue, but they are really doing some major changes. Tell us a little bit about that and how we should think about it. Yeah, well, Citigroup reminds me of, you know, back in the day when I was single on dating sites, there was an option you could choose that said it's complicated. That's kind of <laughs> how I view Citigroup to be right now. Like everyone asks, how did Citigroup's quarter go? It's complicated. So the numbers look pretty strong, but there's a lot more going on. So, just to kind of go through the numbers, uh, revenue and earnings both grew year over year. Revenue was up 9% year over year. Um, net interest income looks really strong, surprisingly so. Investment banking was a surprisingly strong point, uh, especially considering how weak it has, has been at other banks. But on the other hand, Investors care about the stock performance and not just the numbers. You know, you can't have one without the other and still have it be a good investment. And Citi's track record has not been great. Over the past five years, it's underperformed the market by 105 percentage points Oof. when you're talking about total return. It, but it, on the other hand, it's a very, very cheap stock. So, I can't remember before uh, thinking back even before the financial crisis, when you could get one of the big four banks with a five percent plus dividend yield. City City has five point two right now. It trades for forty eight percent of its tangible book value. It's rare for a solid bank to have below a hundred percent of its tangible book value. So, it, you know the numbers look great, but it really hasn't shown a lot of performance. And on the earnings show uh, today, we actually said it perfectly. Citigroup. One of the biggest banks, a really solid history of not being well managed. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because you said it's one of the big four banks, and you've got CEO Jane Frazier. I'm I'm rooting for Jane Frazier, first uh, female CEO of of a major bank. She's got some aggressive plans here. She wants to strip management. She's cutting through five layers of of management. She's she's breaking down silos. It's going to take them about another two thousand jobs. I think they've cut around seven thousand so far. What do you think? Is this going to be a, a turnaround? Is she going to do it? I want her to do it, but I'm a little skeptical. Yeah, I mean, to be to be totally fair, uh, Jane Fraser took over in March 2021, so let's give her time. It's been like right. two, not even yes. two and a half years yet, so let's give her time. A mess the scale of Citigroup takes longer than two and a half years to fix, even if things are going well. She's not the first person to try to overhaul Citi, but definitely the most aggressive in my mind so far uh, in terms of the plans. And a lot of them are already starting to to you know bear results. Um, one of one of the big priorities, for example, is just automating processes throughout the bank that they used to have to pay people to do, um, and that's one thing they've done really well. They've been selling off the, some of their international banking business. One of the biggest handicaps of Citigroup is that it's I mean compared to the other big four banks is how much 
international exposure it having. It's just like completely like fragmented. Like one one department has nothing to do with the other and things like that. Uh, it just closed the sale of, or it's about to close the sale of its Indonesia bank business in the fourth quarter. It just recently announced a deal for part of its China uh, business. Um, it's streamlined. It's it's reorganized its business into five different you know business units. This is the first quarter that was in effect. And as you mentioned, they're really kind of honing down on the management structure. You mentioned removing five layers of management. That's going from 13 to 8. I can't even fathom what 13 layers of management <laughs> looks like. I mean, at The Motley Fool, there's not 13 layers of management. That would be a nightmare to deal with. I mean, if I had 13 layers of bosses to, to talk to and, and, and get approval for projects and things like that. So, it's definitely not the optimal structure. And it's never fun to talk about people losing their jobs. But the reduction in headcount could be if if the business is really that inefficient, which historically the numbers tell us that it is, it could be exactly what's needed. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that's right, and I think, uh, like you said, uh, consolidating some of the the international makes sense, and also lessen some of their exposure there, which I know has has been a concern. They're doing some other stuff, and here's a part where I'm a, I'm a somewhere stuck between skeptical and hey, that's innovative, and that's the city token services thing. So uses blockchain technology. They say that this can facilitate around the around the clock cross border payments. Sounds like a good thing for a fairly internationally focused bank. I want to like this. I hear the word blockchain. I hear the words token. I get a little bit nervous. Should I see this as innovation? And is does this really contribute to the bottom line? Yeah, for me, every time I hear the words blockchain and banking these days, it's like a cross between interest and eye rolling. Yes, <laughs> it's kind of the way I would describe it. We've been hearing for how many years now how blockchain and cryptocurrencies are going to revolutionize the banking business, and. A lot of banks have incorporated blockchain technology to one degree or another in their business. A lot of financial services companies, MasterCard and Visa both have big blockchain divisions, for example. Mm -hmm. But I'm yet to hear a use case that really trickled down to bottom line profit for any of these banks. It absolutely makes sense. It take you know it's in it's 2023 and it's still a nightmare to quickly send money internationally in a lot of institutional cases. So. The need is definitely there. They had a successful pilot, which makes it a little more encouraging. And there is a big need for what they, as they put it, always on financial services, which don't exist right now in a lot of cases for international companies. And City claims that the the market size for being able to tokenize digital securities like this is going to be a four to five trillion dollar opportunity by 2030. I'm not. I'm not skeptical that this is a problem that needs a solution, and that this could be the right solution to it. I'm skeptical as to how it benefits City in terms of in terms of me as an investor. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that's that's a really important point, and it's also blockchain tends to be a little bit like AI. It's it's thrown into releases to 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 you know to jazz things up, and it but it's really important to think about how it's going to play out. I want to talk about one more thing with with City before we move on, and that's their partnership with Edward Jones Financial Services. I like this a bit more than I like the token thing. It feels like a smart deal. Also, feels like something again that's going to take a while to bear fruit. I feel like with City, there's some stuff that we've talked about here that's promising, but as you said, the stock has performed so badly. Is this one where if I'm getting in at this low price, I want to be there for a long time because I know I'm going to have to be patient? 
Yeah, I, I like the Edward Jones partnership a lot, like you said, a lot more than the other one, just because I can see how it could translate to bottom line revenue and bottom line profitability. And just to kind of throw some of the numbers out there, Edward Jones has over 8 million clients among about 19,000 financial advisors with a total of about $1.8 trillion in client assets. So that's a lot of, of money that could potentially get come onto City's platform. How it's going to work is essentially Edward Jones is going to off, offer what I would call co branded financial products with Citigroup to its clients, starting with checking and savings accounts. This won't start until 2024, but they'll be able to offer, say, a high yield checking account that's backed by City um, to its clients. A lot of people want high yield. This is why, for example, um, just to name one, uh, Wells Fargo's deposit base has declined by 5% over the past year because their yields don't compare to what you can get through high yield online players. Uh, there is a big subset of the population, specifically like the other 95% of Wells Fargo's depositors, who have no interest in leaving a secure platform that they trust to put all their money with, you know, SoFi or Ally Bank or one of the online players where you can get four to five percent yields. Now, if there were high yield products and online checking products and things like that backed by City that were comparable to those, it could be a very interesting proposition, especially from a financial advisor's perspective, which a lot of financial advisors won't recommend the high yield platforms and things like that, especially after the banking drama we saw earlier this year. So, we saw. I mentioned Wells Fargo's deposit base declined. Pretty much, Cities did as well. Uh, Bank of America, JP, all of their deposit bases are declining as people look for higher yield options. That decline essentially stopped, at least temporarily, after the the high profile bank failures earlier this year. And the reason is because they're perceived as high quality, just rock solid, too big to fail institutions. And if Edward Jones' partnership could use that to its advantage, this could be a bigger deal than people are expecting. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And you made a really good point about the the high yield savings. And I think the awareness of that is growing. I think a lot of people, especially after bank failures, they just wanted to be somewhere safe. And now they're like, wait a second, if I'm missing out on four, four and a half percent on on cash that's just sitting there, that that's that is too much to just leave around. Yeah, a lot of people don't want to leave that money on the sidelines. But the problem is, big banks generally don't have great savings products. No. My Wells Fargo savings account doesn't pay much, which is why I don't keep much money in it. I keep <laughs> I keep my savings account with SoFi, a bank that pays me, you know, four and a half percent. Because I mean, not not that my savings account at SoFi is enormous, but I'm not giving up hundreds of dollars of free money. And a lot of people um, would would feel the same if they had an option that's backed by a big name bank. Now, other big name banks are figuring this out and are doing a better job of creating higher yield deposit products. Capital One is is an example that's doing a really great job of doing it. But a lot aren't and a lot of c- customers aren't aware that you can get a high yield with a reputable big name bank. And I mentioned Edward Jones's reach and the trust that they have with their clients. You know, you have eight million people who trust their advisor, and when their advisor offers them a, a city branded product, it could be a could be a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Let's keep the financial train going. Let's talk a little bit about Schwab. They reported earnings. Uh, you know, not not a great quarter for Schwab. Uh, revenue down around sixteen percent, but 
good reasons. This company is dealing with two things. One, greater economic climate, as we've discussed, not not so favorable for the work that they do. And the other thing is they're integrating TD Ameritrade. That has dragged on, on their income as they get all of that sorted out. This stock has been beaten up a bit recently, but I don't feel that's fully deserved. What do you think? No, a lot of people don't realize that Schwab's not just a brokerage. They're also technically a regional bank. Um, they have a big a big deposit platform. Um, and there was a lot of question about how much of their deposits were FDIC insured at the time of the, the big uh, crashes. So, it's a, essentially, in a way, being treated like a regional, regional bank stock, or at least it was um, at that point. And I don't really think it, that that's fully kind of worked out of it yet. But you mentioned the TD Ameritrade integration, which, as a TD Ameritrade customer, who's I have a total of five accounts between things like for my kids and and with TD Ameritrade, and only one of them has been migrated to Schwab so far. Um, and I can tell you that the integration is going very seamlessly. Um, I've had absolutely no issues. I think you mentioned a stat to me before we recorded where only like forty five people out of a million are reporting problems with this. Schwab ex- ex- expected some client attrition. And the most recent numbers I could find were from August, where they said the attrition was roughly 4% of TD Ameritrade's revenue before the deal is leaving TD Ameritrade and going elsewhere. And that, as I mentioned, that's somewhat expected. A lot of people are using this as the excuse they need to move their broker to you know, a more, you know, an online user-friendly app-based platform. Um, I have a brokerage account at SoFi too. A lot of people I'm sure have, you know, small accounts at some of these more tech-focused brokerages and are using this as an opportunity to jump ship. But for the most part, just to name the latest figures, as of the end of 2022, there was about $1.8 trillion of client assets at TD Ameritrade. $1.5 trillion of that has already been migrated. They did retirement accounts first, which is why some of my accounts are still there, because those are my non-retirement accounts. But $1.5 trillion has already been migrated, and there's still two waves of, of uh, account migration to go, one in November and one in January or early 2024. They're saving the more active trading accounts for last. I think mine are going to be in November. I don't consider myself an active trader. <laughs> so, my, like four of mine have still have to be transferred over, and I have no intention of moving them. So, it's been going well. They've maintained their customer service during the transition, which is something that a lot of people were worried about. They still claim it takes less than one one minute to answer the average phone call. Which a lot of brokers, that's not the case. I can tell you that firsthand. So that's that's very solid, um, and they're doing a good job of integrating the best parts of both businesses. Just today, they announced that Thinkorswim, uh, the TD Ameritrade trading platform, which when they announced this merger, my biggest question is, am I going to lose access to Thinkorswim? That was my biggest number one thing that would keep me or or lose me as a customer. Now they just announced today that Thinkorswim is available to all Schwab customers. They're calling it uh, Schwab Trading powered by Ameritrade, as kind of a more broad name. And a lot of this is rolling out, and it's really it's adding to their ecosystem. That was kind of the goal. It's not just to acquire TD Ameritrade, Ameritrade's customers, right? It's to combine the best of both platforms: what works, what doesn't work, and. If they're doing that, it's going to be a more valuable product going forward, even with some attrition in the meantime. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. On the on the call, they called it a uh, the CEO called it a bull market for advice right about now. So you just mentioned that the Thinkorswim platform, uh, you know, that sort of competes with some of the other uh, kind of newer, flashier players that are in the in the in the industry. So you've got this sort of 
older brand with Charles Schwab. There's a lot of options out there. Are they really going to, what do they have to do to stay relevant with both the retail investor as well as their uh, more traditional client base? Well, one thing I would point out is Schwab's bread and butter is retirement investing. That's I mentioned that's pretty much what they've migrated so far, and it's been something like 80% of TD Ameritrade's assets. So that part I don't think they're gonna have much of an issue with losing to, you know, a SoFi or things like that. I mean, I'm not moving my solo 401k to SoFi. Right. Yeah. The retirement clients are kind of the backbone of Schwab, is what I would call it. I feel like Schwab targets a different set of investors than say Robinhood or Weeble. Or even SoFi, which is I'd say a little more long-term investor-oriented, but those are generally Robinhood, especially is you know skewed towards smaller accounts, not a big material impact to the potential market or potential asset base that Schwab could bring in. Schwab's bread and butter is big accounts, and I don't really see that jumping ship. Even the robo advisory platform has. The last I checked, had the highest minimum of any robo advisor on my radar. I want to say they had a five thousand dollar minimum to be a robo advisory customer, which a lot of them, like SoFi's minimum is zero. You could start an account with nothing. I think that they're staying relevant by combining the best features of both platforms. I think Thinkorswim is still the best trading software I've ever used, and I think that you know customers that are in their target demographic are going to appreciate it and stick with them. Last question for you. We started talking with uh, blockchain. I got to bring in the other trend, which is AI. Uh, so Charles Schwab, you know, there's there is sort of an maybe a little bit of an existential threat here with the impact of AI on on the investing space and the advising space. Like you said, Schwab, they already have robo advisors. They seem to be embracing the future of AI while they still have to support all of those uh, wealth advisors and everything like that. Is that a tricky thing to navigate for them going forward? It is. The robo-advisory thing isn't new. So, a lot of people who want to be robo-advisory clients are. And, I mean, most retirement plans are a bunch of index funds and things like that. And and I I don't see AI as a big existential threat to companies like Schwab, maybe to a Robinhood or something like that. But Mm -hmm. um, but I I don't, the robo-advisory business isn't a big enough piece of the puzzle where we're having that outcompeted would be a, that big of a deal, if that makes sense. So I, I don't think AI is a giant threat to Schwab, and I think they're a big enough company that they can kind of stay ahead of the the curve on AI. There, I mean, every company every company that is at least a little bit tech focused is investing in AI right now. Of so, course. I, so I, I you know I don't see them letting themselves get outcompeted by smaller players in the space. Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks for breaking this down with me today, Matt. Sure, always glad to to chat financials. The analysts you hear on the show have a whole other day job, providing premium coverage and recommendations for the Motley Fool's suite of stock investing services. We're giving our listeners a discount on Motley Fool's flagship service. It's called Stock Advisor. If you're interested in more analysis from our team, two stock recommendations per month, and access to Stock Advisor's full scorecard of companies, visit www.fool.com slash MFM discount. Before there was WeWork, there was Regis and Mark Dixon. I talked with Dixon, founder of IWG, the parent company of Regis, about hybrid work and the future of offices. Okay.
We're recording this in mid-October, so we're about a month into many of the uh, return to work mandates. We're seeing some increase in uh, in attendance in the U.S. Uh, what are you seeing so far from your uh, aspect? Well, look, from our aspect, we're, we're sort of at the receiving end of a change in the way people are working. So in terms of return to, you know, this, the whole idea of return to work hasn't really affected us because people are working with us, but working with us in different places. This sort of, the idea of return to work is sort of confusing the sort of narrative about what companies are actually doing, which is increasingly moving their workers to more convenient workplaces, closer to where people live. And you know, they're still using cities, but they're just using cities, the larger cities less. So there's a huge change going on. Um, the narrative hasn't yet caught up with reality, but we are benefit benefiting from it. We had record results um, on our half year this year, um, both in revenue and profitability and growth, all three, in fact, and growth in the network. That's caused by more and more people wanting to work in a different way and more and more companies adopting a different way of working. Well, you sort of have this dramatic tension between what workers want and what what companies want. Uh, I heard this new trend word recently called coffee badging. I'd never heard of this before, but this is employees swiping their key card, which of course is used to uh, for attendance, get coffee, and maybe they don't stay the whole day. What are you seeing in terms of how people are using workspaces? Are they are they coming in and out? Is there more flexibility there? Well, look, we're entirely flexible anyway. True. So, you know, essentially we've got three and a half thousand buildings that you can use whenever you want, anywhere you want. Um, so the whole mantra of what we do is around flexibility. And that's why companies are coming to us because they want to give... that. What the companies want, companies want their people to be productive and well-supported. They want them to be efficient. And they want to get the maximum for their from their investment in that employee or group of employees. That that's what companies want. Um, what the, what the workers or the you know the team members want is not to have to commute every day. The the ability to work not at home but close to where you live, some of the time is a huge benefit, and it's one that um, it's one that workers very much value. And it's what is actually happening. And it, it significantly reduces the cost for the company as well. So, you know, the trend is gathering momentum, um, which is, a you know, a change in the geography of work called, allowed by technology, facilitated by technology, allowing people to work in much more convenient locations. And that's what's happening. So... Um, you know, we're opening up in provincial locations all over the world, all over the United States. Uh, and these are, you know, villages, smaller towns, smaller cities. And these are particularly successful as workplace locations because people, you know, they, they just don't want to commute. It's commuting that really is the elephant in the room that people are trying to avoid. Um, the, the amount of cost and the amount of time it takes really makes you know the, a job more unattractive if they have to do that every day. Okay to go into 
a central office to collaborate with colleagues you know, once, twice a week? Absolutely, but not every day. It's just unnecessary. And, it, and for some workers, it's almost never necessary. And they have worked in a flexible sort of hybrid way for a long, long time. It's not, this is not a new thing. It's just more workers are adopting it. Well, and I think this is interesting too, because what you're talking about is the idea of less of going to the office and maybe going to multiple offices. I know that you've talked in recent interviews about hybrid meeting that people want to work, uh, like you said, not necessarily from home, but but near home. Maybe they go to an office near their house uh, one or two days a week, and then they go to the office maybe in the city once a week or or something like that. So, so it seems like there's a lot of optionality now in how we consider work. Yeah, and look, it's what we call platform working. You 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 know you have a platform of places you can work, and as a, a you know as a worker, you decide where you're going to be the most productive on that day. Um, and, and you know it's about convenience. You know, basically, technology allows you to work from anywhere. So why would you travel to an inconvenient place to just use technology? You travel to an inconvenient place to collaborate with other people if that's what you're going to do, but not, not if you're doing basic background work, which most people are doing most of the time. So it, you know, it's a fundamental change and it's sort of, it's been gathering momentum, started pre-COVID, pre the pandemic and, and the pandemic accelerated it. And now it's got terrific momentum with, you know, all, all research points to most companies reviewing hybrid as a change to the way some of their workers or maybe all of their workers in some case cases will work much cheaper much better for people much better for the environment you know what and basically be the most popular thing you ever do for your employees are you seeing it sort of unilaterally happening or are you noticing different trends in different companies uh countries because of course you have you have offices all around the world so yeah. what do you is there a difference in, in attitudes in the U.S. versus elsewhere? That's a really, really interesting question. So, look, it, it's, it's, not, it's not linear, that's for sure. Right. But if you look at the most traditional countries like Japan, that you would think are very traditional, they're also the countries with the longest commute times. Very good transport system, but commute times are long. So, really rapid change in places like Japan that's very traditional. It, it, it depends somewhat, you know, if you go into places like China, very good transport system and, and basically homes are smaller, there may be more families in one home, more generations. So it really depends on where people live and how they're living and how good the transport system is as well. Places like Australia, worst in the world is Australia because the commuting's not very good because there's not that much public transport. Most people commute by car and homes are larger and the technology is very good in the homes. So you get people working more locally in places like Australia because the commute's longer. The ditto, you know, Bay Area, California, or Los Angeles. I mean, it's almost impossible to get from one end of Los Angeles to another unless you want to take hours doing it, you know, so you know, depending on where you are. So it, these, it's, it's sort of down to geography somewhat. 
but it's also down to different traditions in different countries, but it's pretty universal. There's not a single country it's not happening, it's just at what speed is it happening? And this is large corporations pretty universally looking at it, and of course small companies and startups only do this because best way to control your costs. Last thing you want is investing in long-term property when you don't know where your company's gonna be in a year's time. And you don't wanna, you don't wanna be putting capital into property, you wanna be putting it into your business and just, you know, you rentalize. No way you would do that. So therefore, lots of companies are hybrid only. Always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Woolard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.